Well, it's great to have each one of you with us here on this last Sunday in June and the last in our series from John chapters 13 to 17. More on that in just a moment. First, I'd like to make a couple of other comments. Uh, congratulations, commendations to those 28 who were only half of the number who participated in that perspectives course. You invested yourself with a lot of time and energy and sacrifice and more Zoom calls than you were prepared for. And I want to commend you for that, enduring a pandemic and yet making those sacrifices to ask God, God, where would you have me and how would you have me be an influence to those around me? We're praying for you that your priorities, your passions would never be the same and that the ways that you influence our church and our calling in the Great Commission would never be the same as well. Secondly, thanks uh, for uh, all of you who are with us here, whether online, whether here in the worship center, uh, down uh, on the floor or up in the balcony over in the ministry center. So great to have you here. And I'm just reminded as I'm sitting there this morning that nothing can keep the people of God down. Nothing can prevent the gospel of Jesus Christ from advancing. Not, not pandemics, not unrest, not masks, not seating. Thanks, by the way, for the ways in which you're uh, listening to our hosts and, and being seated in ways that are respectful and deferential to others. So many ways that you are participating in our work here and fueling God's work uh, with the gospel. Thank you. Be praying for us. We are looking forward to Dedication Sunday of this particular facility on August the 23rd and then Vision Sunday at the very end of August on the 30th. But before then, we would like to show wisdom and courage in some ways of expanding our ministry options and, and venues for multiple ages. So pray for us, our leadership, our elders, our staff, uh, as we make those decisions and put some things into motion. We ask for your support. We ask for your understanding and we ask for your participation. And believe me, I look forward to, in courageous and safe ways, expanding what we can do here at Grace. Next week, we're going to be starting a series on the Psalms, looking at the different types or genres of the Psalms and how people express the range of emotions to God back in ancient times. And you and I have permission to express those things to God as well. When we recognize who we are and who God is, anger, disappointment, joy, frustration, confidence, fear, the whole gamut of emotions. It's all there in the Psalms and they have lots to teach us. But today, we're in our Upside Down series, the last week from John's Gospel. Turn there, if you would, John chapter 17. This is the final section in, in the final chapter, in the, in the final address of Jesus to his disciples before those uh, domino movements of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and the coming of the Spirit take place. I'm really grateful for pastors uh, Dave and Dan in the last couple of weeks speaking from earlier sections in John 17. You should know we are blessed here at Grace to have a handful of godly men who understand the scriptures and can speak about them to our lives. And I'm grateful in particular for those two recently. We're in the final verses there today of John 17. Let's recap real quickly where we've been in this series. John 13, a page or two back. In your Bibles, if you have a hard copy in front of you, Jesus tells his disciples to love one another. And by this, through this, the world would know to whom they belong. John chapter 14, he says, amidst your troubled hearts, don't let them be troubled because you know who I am and you know where I'm going. 
and you know what I'm doing. I'm God in the flesh. And he tells them that as he departs, that his spirit would come and live in them and give them the power and presence of God. He warns them at the end of uh, chapter 15 that they would be hated by the world. And that hasn't changed for those of us who follow Jesus. But before that, at the beginning of John 15, he says, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Jesus gives promise to those of us who attach ourselves to him based on the grace of God who calls us to him. Finally, at the end of uh, this section, chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples about the work of the Holy Spirit who would convict others, who would go before us in our gospel witness to reveal their hearts to them. And the fact that Jesus, even if we can't make sense of the present, Jesus does. And sometimes we have to go through an era, a season of life in order to look back and say, so that's what God was doing. Ours isn't the first time where we've been confused and baffled by the events of our time. The disciples experienced that. And Jesus said, just wait, trust me, and you will see. John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus to his father. And, and he has his disciples listening in. You know, sometimes prayer is not simply alone, but it gives other people the opportunity to eavesdrop on what we're saying to the father. And Jesus does that explicitly here. The disciples listen in, and Jesus, uh, in very pastoral fashion, concludes his address with a prayer that emphasizes again the things that he has said to them. And we're in the last section there, beginning in verse 20 of John 17. I'd invite you to stand with your copy of the scriptures, and we're going to read that together. John 17, beginning in verse 20. I'm reading from the New International Version. Read with me here. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I may, myself may be in them. Thank you for honoring God's word. You may have a seat. John 17, the last section, we send out to you a, a sermon study guide, and you can pick those up on your way in here each Sunday. The first point in that outline, the goal of oneness, John 17, 20, and 21. Jesus here adds a third group to his high priestly prayer. In the first handful of verses, Jesus prays for himself. In the next dozen or so verses, Jesus prays for his immediate disciples who are with him in that space. And now he prays for those who would believe on their message as they are sent into the world. By the way, that includes you and me if we know Jesus. That includes not just those who on the day of Pentecost believed to the tune of 3,000 people, 
but it includes people in Columbus in 2020 and people in the last 2,000 years of history and people to whom we go in our present world. And should the Lord tarry, the people that will hear the gospel message. The message is that each one of us has value and each one of us is accountable to God. The message is that each one of us ought to confess our sinfulness before God and our rightful condemnation, but that each one of us can embrace Jesus Christ, who's the substitute on our behalf, his life, his death, his resurrection, so that we might be reconciled to God. And each one of us has opportunity to respond through repentance of sin and trust, faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel message, and Jesus prays for those who will hear that message through the disciples and those they reach. The question this morning, the question for all of us is, does that include you? Have you trusted personally in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord? And if you have, you belong to the family of God, to the body of Christ, and to the disciples who follow Jesus. If that's you, Jesus' prayer here is for you. And what is that prayer? It's that those believers, that this grand multitude of people who, who make up the church of Jesus Christ would be one. Look at verse 21. Where these individual believers would experience an uncommon unity just like the Son and the Father experience perfect unity with one another. Jesus is praying for otherworldly, for complete unity, verse 23. And note that this unity is only possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we can plan all the rallies, all of the gatherings, all of the ecumenical services that we want till the cows come home. But the unity that Jesus speaks of here is available to and limited to those who experience God's salvation through trust in Jesus Christ alone. That means that gospel proclamation, gospel reception are essential. Nobody evolves into becoming a Christian. Some people think that. If I come to church enough, if I say enough prayers, if I hang around Christian areas enough, that somehow I'll kind of become one. No. The gospel requests, even demands a personal response of faith in Jesus Christ. Trust is required. And in order to experience the unity that Jesus offers and promises, you must know Jesus. Jesus highlights here this mutual relationship between the Son and the Father, a, a perfect, complete unity that they experience. And Jesus wants that for those who will follow him. Which begs the question here, what is that oneness? What is that unity? What does it look like before a watching world. You know, a lot of people have given all kinds of answers throughout Christian history, throughout the history of the church. Does that mean that we all get together in, in some kind of giant kumbaya moment uh, on the scale of Mecca except for Christians? Does, does that mean that we have this kind of ecumenical unity that puts all of the branches of Christianity together? Does that mean we need to eliminate all denominations because as some claim, they only fragment the church of Jesus Christ. Wrongly, I believe. What does it mean to be one? To be brought together in complete, perfect unity? 
It's very clear here in John 17 that Jesus is speaking about a spiritual unity among his followers and that allegiance to him, submission to him is the basis for that. As it were, Jesus is the hub of the wheel. Jesus is the foundation of the house. Jesus is the North Star. He makes that clear earlier in John 17, that to know God means to belong to Jesus. There's no unity apart from explicit faith in God's sent one, Jesus. As one New Testament scholar says, this unity is achieved by common adherence to the apostolic gospel, the gospel of the apostles, by love that is joyfully self-sacrificing, by undaunted commitment to the shared goals of Jesus' mission, by self-conscious dependence on God himself for life and fruitfulness. These are the key markers around which we unify, a common gospel, shared, sacrificial love, mutual commitment to mission, and deep dependence upon God. These are the markers of classic evangelical Christianity, that Jesus is the Son of God, that the Bible is God's authoritative word, that, that you must be born again, the necessity of conversion, and a common calling to mission together. The good news is that the gospel is traveling to the ends of the earth, that that Jesus' message is being taken to new places and, and new people groups and new generations. You might not know this, but Christianity is the most global faith by far. That's all good news. The challenge is that all of this has taken place over the last 2,000 years and spanning the planet. And so there's no way for us to all gather in one physical locale so that the watching world can see us. I remember back in 1995, a, a generation ago, being up in the Silver Dome in Detroit with promise keepers and, and 80,000 men who were singing and praying and praising God, thinking, oh, Lord, if only we could experience this all we, If only the world could see this. But we couldn't stay there. No, it's not simply gathering in one location. But it does mean that the unity of believers ought to be observable to a watching world. And that presents a dilemma. How are they going to see who we are? Many of us are tempted in our culture to be Lone Ranger Christians. You know, we say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I've been saved. I seek to follow him. My future is secure. The Spirit of God lives in me. What more is necessary? But unless you're a believer who's living on a deserted island, that mentality is often motivated more by a desire to avoid connections, to avoid allegiances and commitments than it is that you have no opportunity with other believers. In other words, many people, followers of Jesus professing, really just want to be free agents. They want to be like uh, a lot of golfers. We want to keep our own score. We want to play our own game. And then we want to inform everyone else at the end. Jesus, yes. His family, eh, maybe not. One current pastor puts it like this. It's much easier today to make a case for commitment to Christ than commitment to the church. Isn't that true? If knowing him means linkage to them, I'm not so sure. 
But Jesus here is calling us to something more. We, we say this often at Grace. To belong to his family is to embrace his mission. You can't have one or the other. But one step back is true too. To know Jesus is to belong by definition to his family. And that shows itself in concrete, visible ways. It shows itself in our life together. It shows itself in a community of believers. It shows itself in participation in and commitment to a local church like here. And that unity, which can be very visible, is powerful evidence of Jesus' prayer. Paul, Paul wrote to some communities back in his day to express that. Look at this, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit of any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In other words, if you have any connection to Christ, you have every reason to love one another sacrificially and to promote intentional unity. You see, we have the deepest thing in common if we know Jesus. And that affects our conduct, that affects our relationships. And dare I say, these next several months will test the metal of our unity, of our community. Will we protect the unity that we have in Jesus Christ? Will we trust our leadership? Will, will we defer to one another? Will we take the experiences and the perspectives of other people seated around you here and watching online and others connected to grace? Will you take them seriously? Will we love one another intentionally? Here's another passage where Paul says something similar. Ephesians chapter 4, the church in Ephesus, verse 1, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. There it comes again. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Important verse. There is one body, one spirit, just as, called, as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father in all. Do, do you hear the word? Who is over all and through all and in all, but to each of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is relationships together. You and I, if we know Jesus, have a spiritual unity in that we belong to God's family. That, that's a divine work. That's because... God has given us his spirit. But our responsibility, Ephesians 4 says, is to keep the unit, protect, preserve the unity in observable and visible ways. And the rest of chapter 4 of Ephesians makes that clear. This bond of peace, God makes possible. In fact, God says protecting this is essential. To belong to Christ and to not live in observable unity with other believers makes a mockery of what God has done. Let me say that again. To belong to Christ and to not live in observable unity with other believers makes a mockery of what God has done. And that means unity with other believers who are different than we are. That's hard work. 
Our environment, especially now, pulls us in all kinds of directions. All of us are urged to run for cover, to, to run to our tribe, our, our echo chamber, our safe zone. But Jesus Christ calls his followers out of those corners. He calls us into the center of his best work. He calls us to what's actually the safest zone together. At Grace, we have a, a series of core values, and they guide not just what we do, but how we do it. And one of them is particularly relevant in order to understand and respond to a passage like this in John chapter 17. Let's look at that here. That core value says we celebrate unity in diversity. The plan of God involves people of very different backgrounds, ethnicities, ages, and economic means. Well, that's a lot of difference. The people of God proclaim through their diversity the gospel's power to transform all kinds of people. We welcome such variety within our church family, and we choose to view it as a benefit even with its complexities. With such diversity, we are enriched, and the radiance of the gospel reconciliation is highlighted. Do you see there what our world says is frustrating and complicated? We say, because we know Jesus, this is opportunity. In the family of God, those who are different from us in all kinds of ways, if they know Jesus, we have opportunity. Naturally, this is a reality that we experience, but it's also an aspirational hope. We're not there yet. We're far from having arrived. Uh, let me say something honest here. A multi-generational church, which we enjoy here, is also complicated. We have different values and preferences and desires, even based upon the era of life that we grew up in. Differences in socioeconomic level are complex. We have some of that at Grace, but in order to reflect our, our region more, I would love for us to have more. We have ethnic differences, and those are significant. We have people from other countries, other cultures, other languages, even in our region. For the sake of the gospel, I would love to have more. For those of you who are in the minority, however you define that here at Grace, thank you for being part of our church family. You enrich us and you help our testimony. There's the reality of race. Race might be a social cultural category rather than a biological one. But we all know that skin color affects our, our country's history and our nation's present. And of all the places where that ought to be experienced differently, it's in the church of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? I beg us as a church to act and to speak counterculturally in ways that, that affirm the dignity and the delight of racial and ethnic diversity. And I'm more interested in what our church displays than the sincere but fleeting attempts of the world. Now, it's vital to say, unity doesn't mean uniformity. After all, the model for this kind of unity is the Trinity. And, and though they're one in essence, Father, Son, and Spirit exist in three persons. So there's a, there's a vast difference between unity and uniformity that we always think the same way. 
Unity is best demonstrated in diversity. Uniformity is threatened by diversity. But we need to see this as a gift from God to his family, maybe especially when it's difficult, because it's in our differences that we show who and whose we are, who unites us. But why? Why does Jesus pray for this? What what difference does it make? You and I can confess it's wearisome to hear all the calls for unity in our world, in our country, and sometimes even in our church. Well, Jesus tells us why it matters. The result of that kind of unity is witness. Our unity has a profound evangelistic value. Our unity is one of God's means, maybe his chief means, to show the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when others look at a diverse group of people who have nothing else in common except for Jesus, they have to scratch their heads and say, how is that possible? They can't explain it in any other way but the Jesus who lives in them. The display of unity is so compelling, so unworldly, that their witness, our witness as to who Jesus is, becomes explainable only if Jesus truly is the revealer whom the Father has sent. And our unity, the witness of it, points in two directions. One of them we read in the letter to the Ephesians. Chapter 3, verse 6 reads like this, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Skip down a few verses to Ephesians 3, verse 10. His, God's intent, was that now, through the church, listen, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the most astonishing statements in all the Bible. Our unity causes earthquakes in the heavenly realms. Do you believe that? Both demons and angels see how the church of Jesus Christ relates with one another and it shocks them. Is it a good shock? They can be stunned by what God can do with followers of Jesus. One of the pastors in our era, Colin Smith up in Chicago, he's Scottish, so I'd love to hear him say this in his own voice. He writes, the distinctions of culture, race, education, social standing, income, gender, generation exist only for a time. The unity of God's people is for eternity. It makes the angels gasp. And that's what Paul's talking about when he says that God is putting his wisdom on display for a vast audience in heaven through the church. This is our ultimate purpose, to reflect Jesus himself. It all started in a groundbreaking way when Jesus returned to the Father and sent the Spirit. On that day of Pentecost, God was beginning his new creation, drawing people from all over the world, representing all of the nations to faith in Jesus Christ, gathering them together in a new community that the Bible calls the church. And from the very first day, those barriers of race and language and culture were transcended. Smith goes on to say, throughout the history of the world, man has tried to achieve this kind of unity. We see it in our own day, I might add. 
some way to pull us all together. He, man, humanity is always trying, but he will never succeed. But God is bringing together people from every culture and every generation, making them one in Christ Jesus. See, God's got the secret. One of the most satisfying, complicating, and fascinating experiences I've ever had was to be part of a leadership team at an international church in Berlin. This is the years 2004 to 2007. We had eight people on our leadership team, and we had every skin color represented. We had every personality, I think. We had individuals on that leadership team from every continent on earth save Australia. And we had to learn to listen well. We had to learn to ask questions rather than just make declarations. We moved slower than we preferred. But I think we were more effective because we learned that only Jesus could unite us and only Jesus could give us a common direction. And other people saw that. We live in a day and age in which people are not just skeptical about the claims of Jesus Christ or about the reality of God or about this salvation message. Many people are willing to consider those claims. But many more are deeply skeptical that the Christian faith can actually make a difference in our horizontal relationships. They might say something like this. It, it, this salvation may reconcile you to God in the sweet by and by, but can it actually change how people get along? Can it bring peace and harmony to people? What, what's the evidence, Christian? And the evidence, Jesus said, is in the relationships between you and me, between us in the church of Jesus Christ. So that others say, oh, so that's what it looks like. We so desperately need that kind of witness in our society. And it would be highly attractive the more people saw it. One of the things that most impresses the world is the way that Christians love each other and live together in harmony. See, the lost world can't see God, but they can see Christians. And what they see in us is what they will believe about God. Wearsby's right. Jesus points back to what he said at the beginning of this section, John 13, 35. How we love one another demonstrates who we are. And that's desperately needed. You may have noticed this. We live in a fractured, polarized, tinderbox of a society right now. You combine our politically toxic environment, add a heaping portion of a, an invisible pandemic, throw in the friction of mandated or recommended hygiene measures, combine it with the uncertainties of macroeconomic turmoil, bake it with the dynamic of a racially charged reality, and you get what we're living in. Tranquility would be the last word I'd use to describe where we're at. And yet it's peace and harmony that the people of our world are looking for, isn't it? Friends, we have the secret ingredient. Belonging to Jesus, being indwelt by his spirit, we have what they desperately want. The, the question is, is it latent or suppressed or is it evidenced in our relationships? 
Ephesians 4 says that we already have this unity of the Spirit, but verse 13 says that God is, is equipping us to show it. But it's difficult. Jesus knew that. So did Paul. Because, shocker, churches don't automatically practice unity and peace and love. You ever experienced that? Here's what Paul had to say to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One says, I follow Trump. Another says, I follow Biden. Another says, I follow DeWine. I follow Fauci. I follow Acton. I follow Hannity. I follow Cuomo. I follow fill in the blank. Or they say, I follow Keller. I follow Osteen. I follow Franklin. I follow, follow Moore. I follow MacArthur. Is that what it says? No way. No, it actually says, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided, Paul says? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. We follow Jesus, and it's in Jesus that we find agreement and affinity and unity because we confess that he alone is our guide, our advocate, our Lord. One of our pastors looked back at the fall 2019. They remembered we had two uh, African church leaders with us, Dr. Francois Goumapé and Pastor Jonas Bavon. And he remarked that we have almost nothing in common with them except Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have everything in common with them. And that's because of Jesus. In him, we have an otherwise unexplainable unity. And that's a gift from God. And that's Jesus's prayer for us. And that's the hope of glory. Jesus concludes this passage, this chapter, this section with a plea to the Father. He looks forward to the day, uh, the, the coming experience of the church, which is now 2,000 years old. And he longs for the presence of believers with him. He longs for them to see his glory. He longs to see the fruit of his labors. Long after the life and death and resurrection in his life, he longed for the millions of them to see the goal of their faith, the salvation they receive from a fallen world and their presence with him in glory. And Jesus goes to prepare a place for them. And if you know him, for us. And now Jesus is looking forward to that invisible reality and he knows that what he prays the Father will do first for him and then for his followers. And if we know him, we long for that too, right? We long for what Jesus says is a foretaste that we experience now of what's to come in the future. So what's he praying for here? He's praying for the perfect love that he enjoys with the Father, that he enjoys with the Spirit, 
as part of the Trinity, that it would be experienced by his followers, you and me. Call it the circle of love. There's a movie many years ago highlighted the presence of a relational reality they called the circle of trust. There was a young man who was seeking to enter it, but he had to prove his character, his fidelity to his potential father-in-law. And the movie, funny, demonstrated, documented all kinds of ways in which he sought to do this, but it was futile. It was ill-advised for this young man to try to get in the circle and stay there. The father, if you know the movie, was unpredictable, and the man was foolish, and he failed. He couldn't earn his way in. That's the math of this world. But in God's math, Jesus has already performed all that's necessary for you and for me to enter the circle of love. Through his life and death and resurrection, Jesus has met all the conditions of the Father. And therefore, those who follow him, who have been saved by God's grace, can enter into the circle of love without needing to perform any more righteousness to earn their way in. That's great news. And so here, before the cross, Jesus prays that the circle of love that is the Trinity would be widened to include us. He looks forward to seeing Christians themselves having been caught up in the love of the Father for the Son, secure and content and fulfilled by the love of the Almighty himself with the very same love that he, the Father, reserves for the Son. And it's hard to imagine a more compelling evangelistic appeal, Carson writes, that when others see that in us, they say, whoa, Where does that come from? Jesus says, come join through me the circle of love with God. And knowing Jesus is the watershed. See, when we're rightly connected to Jesus, we receive that special kind of love. Jesus becomes the enabler, the conduit for God's love. And this love lubricates the relationships that you and I share in his family. This love becomes the glue, the fuel of who we are and what we do. This love allows us to stand and sit and work side by side in all of our differences and to appreciate one another. This love provides a contrast with the tension and the conflict in our world, especially now. This love encourages us that when we get the scorn of the world, for being weird or problematic that we rally together. See, it's more than our brilliance. It's more than our eloquence. It's more than our passion. Our greatest witness to Jesus Christ is in how we love one another as part of the body of Christ. Do you believe that? And so the question is, is it there and do they see it? As Danny comes, as we prepare to respond, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say that We live in a strange time. Pick your adjective. Weird, unique, unprecedented, uncertain, volatile. If anyone needs evidence that our world, our society is sick right now, the the evidence is abundant. But these times are tailor-made for the contrast that followers of Jesus give. Because we have the gospel, we have peace and love and hope that the world longs for and is our destiny and can even be our reality.
Kustenberger says, by believing, we enter the circle of love existing between the persons of the Godhead, and they also enter into the triune purpose and mission. Here it is, to spread the message of God's love for the world and His Son in the face of opposition and hostility. Friends, our unity reflects Jesus's identity, bears witness to who Jesus is. The question is, will we be contributors to what he's doing for his glory? Would you stand?